0: Um, remote warfare project, um, really interesting group doing some really interesting work scrutinizing how the British government, particularly the British military industrial complex, does conflict. Uh, Dr. Colin Brown, uh, a consultant in Public Health England, uh, who will uh, explain to you just how much worse things could get. I'm a witness to public health. I had one of the Before I became a war reporter, I covered the Marlboro Emirati fever outbreak in Angola. Which was easily the most terrifying thing I've done because if you cover a war, you don't spend the two weeks afterwards wondering whether you're suddenly going to internally dissolve. Um, and um, and you know, if you work in his line of work, then you do know, so. A guy who is, you know, who is probably afraid for the rest of the panel to put together. Uh, Samantha Azumadu, uh, freelance journalist, uh, creator of a, ver- of a very useful group called Writers of Colour, um, which showcases work by uh, people of colour. Um, a writer of uh, an upcoming memoir on being a foreign correspondent in Africa, uh, but also wrote a really good piece on uh, being a construction worker. Um, and far last, but I know in sense at least, uh, David Rubens, uh, former Israeli really army expert in uh, cities and resilience, and the director of the Institute for Security Risk, <laughs> for Strategic Risk Management, uh, which is a new body being created because it turns out anyone can create tank these days. <laughs> um, and uh, without any more ado, I'm going to hand over to uh, to John to talk to his perspective on uh, imagining
1: next crisis Okay. Um, this microphone works too, so that's good. Okay. Um, uh, my name is John Bassett, and um, I uh, what I'm going to say is unclassified, and what I'm going to say is a personal view and does not represent. You necessarily of the British government, or any part of it that I used to work for, and I always have to say that. Um, My uh, locus on crises is I've had an unhealthy um, amount of crises on my watch in government. Um, From uh, September 2001 until 2004, I was um, head of GCHU's current operations, which was a busy time. And from 2004 to 2007, I was GCHQ's lead rep, Cobra Crisis Management Process. Um, in terms of uh, what I was going to say on this occasion, um, you're on the train on the way up, what, what are the themes, um, and I came up with um, three words that worried me. Um, what are the things that frightened me most about crises, world events, Um, chance, fear, uncertainty. Um, I thought that's the the things that used to worry me and still worry me. It's not a very encouraging thing, so I thought I'd also add to chance, fear, and uncertainty a sense of how I used to and still calculate risk, my idiot's guide to assessing a risk which is, think of it in three categories. How likely is it that some bad guys, from your point of view, are going to try this off? Give it a rating between naught. I haven't got any enemies. No one will try to hurt me. One, no, no maybe not. Um, Three, lots of people want to do this thing to me. How likely is it that they're going to succeed? Nought, they have no chance of succeeding against me. Three, they are bound to succeed. And how damaging would it be if they did? Nought, they couldn't hurt me if they tried. Um, three, it will be catastrophic. And you multiply all those together and you get a mark out of 10. And if you're really, really unlucky, you can get a mark of 27 out of 10 for how much you are at risk, in which case you should stay in the bar and have another drink because you're really, um, that Um So I would say with a crisis, with something that happens, the thing that I most remember is actually trying to understand what it is that's happened and where it is in the world and what the nature of it actually is. And I have a very strong memory from the immediate aftermath of September, 2001 of some very good people briefing on things who had expected a different story and who at the morning brief always put up a map of Oman, even though something terrible was going down based in Afghanistan. And it took weeks for, to get them to think that this isn't the story we thought it was going to be. Something very, very, very different has happened. That cognition piece is really important in crisis management. And that cognition piece and those themes of um, fear and uncertainty um, and chance are the points I think I'd make at this stage, and I'd pass across at this stage. Can I just have a quick writing question I now? Mean, if you look at the 9/11 aftermath, I mean,
0: I get the impression that everyone decided their their risk that their risk values, their risk judgment has suddenly changed hugely and that the world had changed perhaps more than it did. I mean, just to talk through how, how the, the day after 9-11 felt different and how that changed how people did crisis management. I,
1: I think I'd actually say the week after. Um, if you look at the Saturday, which is a critical period in the comprehension of the situation, you have the Camp David uh, uh, Camp David conference, uh, President Bush's Camp David conference, where you get the um, rumsfeld um position coming through very strongly that this is about Iraq, with consequences that we're all very familiar with, um, and you get then a sense of here is the story we thought we were going to tell. This is the story we wanted to be. Don't take that story away from us. We want this to be about Iraq. Um, and you get very quickly into a state either where you deny that there's been a change at all, or you make the change fit into what you want it to be. I think there's is that cognition piece, um, which is a real challenge in any piece of crisis management. And uh, how has that changed by the emergence of cyberspace, the internet, social media, all the
0: things? Well, if, if all the ways in which the world
1: has changed since 9/11, I'm not convinced it's changed it very much at all. Actually, I think it's um, people will talk more, more quickly. Um, but I would think actually, um, I, I don't see that as having changed very much. There's more of an opportunity for false leads and for um, you know false news, disinformation, misattribution. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. that it's actually a revolutionary change there. And I mean, the other, the other shift
0: that's happened since 9 11 is that we've moved from a world where the US and the West were unipolar superpowers, to a world where we've got a lot of big countries bouncing up against each other. How does that sort of change how
1: you envisage, how you would worry about the next crisis, whatever that might be? Um, paradoxically, i thinking about this. Um, Reassuring, um, I was thinking particularly of Russia and the West. And uh, where we are now compared to where we were 10 years ago, and how much um, more stable actually things are now than they were 10 years ago. Um, and um, 10 years ago they were confused. We had uh, things like Lienko, we had things like um, the uh, cyber attack on Estonia. We had things like uh, the uh, war in Russia and Georgia over Abkhazia time of great confusion and no real sense of how what, what actually are the norms in that not as bad as um, 20 or 19 years ago 1999 where we very nearly accidentally got into a shooting war with Russia at Airport. now we're in a situation where we've got great armies all lumbering up against one another um, and we have far better understood norms um, of what's allowable and what's not allowable and you have a deconfliction that's happened this afternoon between Prime Minister Netanyahu and uh, President Putin regarding the shootdown in the Mediterranean overnight. Um, actually things, if you look at the reaction to the attempted assassinations in Salisbury, it's a far more unified reaction than the reaction to the Litvinenko murder in 2006. So I'm actually quite encouraged, certainly on the West Russia this year, that we've got an emerging doctrine of unspoken norms of what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and that actually the risk there is rather less than it was 10 years ago or even 20 years ago. And that would also extend to the cyberspace? Yes, I think it does. I think there's, the norms there are broader, but I think they're emerging. Um,
2: I'm Mike Dullin. I've been a financial journalist for the last thirty years. I've had the misfortune to see many crises in the financial world. Um, and long before um they seem to pop up every three to five years. Uh, from the from the crash of '87 to to the ERM crisis in the early '90s, to the uh, emerging market collapse of '97, uh, '98, uh, the dot com bust in two thousand, two thousand one, Um it's. Crisis was, is a word that's used quite a lot in the financial world. Um, when we got 10 years ago, and, and obviously imagining the next crisis, it's impossible not to re-examine the last one. And 10 years ago, you've probably read it, reams and reams and inches of what led to that and, and uh, who predicted it or, more importantly, who didn't predict it. Um, but I think one thing that I would pick up on from um, just what we've been talking about is that the crisis that's in front of you never quite fits the narrative that you want. Um, And when people say nobody predicted a crisis in in 2007-2008, that's that's not strictly true. Um, I mean, two, three years prior to that, um, both as a journalist and talking to people throughout the economics and and, uh, financial world, people felt that something bad was going to happen. I think they just didn't imagine it would happen in the way in which it panned out, And a lot of people claim um, a lot of credit for having seen um, a crisis, to use that word again, on the horizon. But if you go back and look at what they were talking about, it was very, very, very different to how it actually uh, transpired. And um, I think that's really what made it into the gigantic, um, uh, um, um, uh, almost unprecedented event that it, that it was. Uh, people looked at, the build-up of debt, they looked at potential housing bubbles, and they saw the possible resolution of that of, of a very big um, um, drawdown in markets and uh, possible recessions, etc. played out through macroeconomic um, and stabilization, etc. The usual um, playbook that would have seen big recessions over the previous 20, 30, 40 years. That's not what happened. What you got was a near death experience of the entire system. Um, nobody saw it. Pan out in that way. or Very few people, and they did. It was even, you know, just parts of it that they they saw. And I'm tempted to think, if you're imagining the next crisis, that again, the sort of narrative that you might look at is not exactly how it plays out. So almost by definition, the crisis will be something that we aren't looking at today, um, and not looking at in that particular way. Um, you know, so most people at the moment, we talked about in Gordon Brown talking earlier in the week about everyone sleepwalking to the next crisis. You talk to People throughout the financial industry, and they think, Well, you know, we're 18 months away from a downturn or a recession. Um, if you look at the trade wars that Donald Trump has started, if you look at uh, what's happening in emerging markets, you might think it's it's all upon us. But I think we need to separate what happened 10 years ago as a complete collapse and just a near death experience in which the whole system would fail, the ATMs wouldn't work. The, um, most of the people transacting and, and uh, employed in that industry would not be would not be in the job that we're doing How close do you think we came to that in two thousand eight? Oh, we were on the cusp, absolutely. Uh, and and the interesting bit about what what transpired was that how do you define crisis? And, and, and crisis is really overused word. I and mean, both as a journalist and as a uh, you know watcher of financial affairs, it's 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 just drowns all our copy and. and People become inured to that idea. But that was truly a crisis. I looked up the definition before I came here it's an crisis, and there are many definitions. Some are actually quite um, um, more benign than I expected it to be. But one of the things in the medical world is that it's the inflection point in a disease between recovery and death. Um, and that's the point. And I think that best describes where we were 10 years ago. Um, and also the idea that Lehman was a moment in itself um, Is not also true, you know, as financial journalists we had spent the previous 18 months um, tearing our hair out, tracking uh, a building price that seemed endless and, and, and almost um, um, seemed to go on and on and on and on. So the idea that one day it popped up and and, and So I guess the question now, looking forward, is that, you know, can we see that, are we already in another crisis? Some people would argue we are, but it's not necessarily in financial markets. Yes, we will see a recession in, in, in 18 months' time, but recessions come and go all the time they have throughout history. You know, will the markets fall 20%, 25%? Well, yeah, markets go up and markets go down. But is it truly a crisis in the way in which we're looking at? And I suspect that if everyone predicts a repeat of Lehman or predicts a recession turning into a crisis. I think they're probably looking in the wrong territory. I think the regulatory and the banking um, remedial action probably doesn't prevent another crisis akin to 10 years ago, but it certainly makes it an awful lot harder to happen. Um, so I think we should be looking somewhere else. And um, perhaps um, the buildup of debt, I think, is, is a common feature. Um, it always is, in crisis. All the ones I mentioned earlier were that way. Uh, and the summer of emerging market, um, turbulence might prick our ears up and, and, and make us think of them, make the seeds of it. Um, but I think it's in politics. Um, we may already be in crisis. Uh, the, 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 the political the rise of populist groups of of, of the anti-establishment parties across the world um, is not coincidental or random. Uh, it all was born of the last crisis and the fallout. And in some respects, you could argue that we're still in that crisis, and it's just playing out in politics. And in uh, the ballot box uh, and the policy responses, rather than the marketplace. Have you? Thank
3: you. Hi. I work for the Oxford Research Group, uh, as Peter said, on a program called the Remote Warfare Program. So we we were set up in 2014 to examine changes in military engagement, and specifically the shift. Post Iraq and Afghanistan, as much as we ever post Iraq and Afghanistan, towards light footprint interventions, where uh, instead of the large scale deployments, Western and not non-Western states, but we look particularly at the UK, We're working alongside local and regional <coughs> forces who did the bulk of the frontline fighting, with the UK providing training, air uh, support, and equipment. And so, over the last 18 months, we've been looking at the legal, political, and military implications of this shift in engagement in a three-part series which we launched last night, and for which I now have a devastating hangover. <laughs> so, um, as, we, as we mark the 17th anniversary of this forever war in Afghanistan, it seems expe- especially pertinent to be looking at this type of engagement when looking at crisis not only because it's a new way in which the West is dealing with crises, especially in terms of potential terrorist threats, but also because the way in which we are engaging in this type of warfare seems to be setting us up for another crisis. Exaggeration. So the failure of the costly wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to produce the expected levels of stability and safety both for the region and the West Left a long political and economic shadow and led to much soul searching over how to address the terrorist threats abroad, especially when faced with declining military budgets and a lack of political will for Western boots on ground. It seems that against this backdrop, remote warfare has become the go to method for crisis management in parts of the world. This is not to say that it's been a conscious strategy. In the UK, while there's been a lot of rhetoric and doctrine about the need to develop local forces to deal with terrorist threats. Um, And an acknowledgement that you can't just militarily defeat terrorism, that there has to be a legitimate force that takes the place of Western forces to stop groups re-emerging. It does seem that quite a lot of the impetus for the way that we're currently engaging is based around risk aversion rather than a, a a magic pill to deal with instability abroad. We, we've just been undertaking a series of interviews with military personnel in Iraq and Afghanistan, and also we've just got back from Nairobi and Mali. And in each of the cases, we got the sense that the UK and many of its allies were just throwing men here and there, trying to stem the problem and stay engaged. But at the same time there was a lot of talk about how we were sleepwalking into this form of engagement without a greater strategy for the regions in which we were engaged or the problems we were trying to address. Similarly for policymakers, we noticed that the, this type of engagement seemed appealing because given because of the lack of oversight because it's a, a light military footprint, they're on more of a training role than a combat role, and they usually involve more secretive forces like special forces. There was a risk that, and it's been noted by a number of MPs, that are we, are we reaching for this type of engagement because it's politically expedient or because it's the best method for addressing the threat abroad? And certainly we've seen benefits of this approach. There's been no ha- high profile anti-war protests on the streets of London. And by the embarrassing defeat of the principle of military action in, in Syria in 2013, the UK has been able to lend support to its allies relatively unhindered. The high profile liberations of Mosul and Raqqa from ISIS control have also done much to reassure critics that this model of engagement can work and that with the right local fighters can prevail. However, there are a number of serious risks posed by this type of engagement and failing to fully understand or account for them may lead to the UK sleepwalking into the next crisis. This is especially problematic given the lack of debate over this type of engagement. As was just mentioned, there's a lot of debate around the resurgent Russia and peer-on-peer conflict. And we've seen in our own conversations with military force development people that um, there's been a lot of concentration on the UK's most dangerous task, often to the detriment of understanding it's most likely. And this is dangerous. The implications are at best that we're ineffective in the places we're intervening, and at worst that we're sowing the seeds for greater instability in the countries that we're engaged in. So take the fight in ISIS, against ISIS in Iraq, Syria, and Libya. While remote warfare has allowed local forces to push back ISIS, the emboldening of groups based on the ability to tackle a terrorist group while putting to one side the internal dynamics of the conflict, has allowed local actors to push back the group, but has fragmented and polarized the society in its wake, to the detriment of stability and the ability to fight groups that re-emerge. Thus, in avoiding debate about these forms of engagement, the UK and its allies may be inadvertently creating the next crisis.
0: Interesting. And Colin, presumably everything is
4: much better managed at the world of medicine. Yeah, not so much. (laughs) Um, So uh, just a little bit about me. I'm an infectious disease consultant. I split my time roughly a third in Africa doing uh, development work on international health regulation strengthening uh, so that countries are able to report infectious disease threats to one another, a third domestically in the UK working with Public Health England on antimicrobial resistance and emerging infections, and then a third clinically working with the Royal Free Hospital uh, up the road in in, uh, Halstead. So I was very much involved in the Ebola outbreak 2014 to 2016. I probably spent about nine months um, off and on in, in Sierra Leone, clinically working uh, with Ebola patients and, and doing uh, aspects of public health response. And I think that is a useful window into the infectious disease threats that could uh, be the next uh, crisis in the world. So to give a bit of background, bowl was discovered in 1976. All the previous outbreaks before uh, the one in 2014, 2016, probably amounted to about 2,000 cases in total, and there hadn't been an outbreak much over 400 cases. It was really thought to be very much like a financial crisis, a, a sort of black swan event in, in retrospect, because all the assumptions that we had were incorrect. You know, it was too fatal; it was not supposed to be. In man for transmission, so we were the dead end host. People died too quickly to be able to transmit it. It was always in rural areas that were very close to jungles where people really would you know, they, they would be self limited. Outbreaks would be limited to just one or two little small communities, and then no one would go near those communities because they knew that there was a problem, and uh, therefore they would just fizzle out, you know, maybe with some intervention or, or without intervention. They wouldn't get into capital cities, there wouldn't be kind of mass uh, transmission. And when we look at the end of the West African outbreak, we saw about 30,000 people across Guinea, Sierra Leone, and uh, Liberia, predominantly affected, with about 11,000 deaths. So i mean, dwarfing all the other uh, outbreaks uh, that, that, that have been seen before. And the measures and tools that we used to, to combat those uh, were essentially exactly the same as we do in all other outbreaks. So it's standard sort of contact tracing, knowing who has been in contact with who, uh, making sure that you can adequately isolate those people until they're known to be symptomatic or not. Making sure you've got adequate testing facilities, making sure you've got safe places uh, to treat those patients, and the facilities that they're treated in uh, are safe uh, for the the patients and the staff alike. And then, where where necessary, uh, safely burying the dead in an appropriate manner and culturally appropriate manner as well. And so, we used the same sort of tools that we did before, and it was really just a lack of thinking about the fact that the the world is much more interconnected now. I mean, Sierra Leone is. A country of six million people—it's about the size of Wales. You can drive across it in a day, even though know, people think that one end of the country, you know, internally, is you know miles miles away from uh, from the next. It was thought to be a, a country-specific problem rather than a geography problem. And actually, if you look at the outbreak epicenter, it was really on the border region where there was a specific tribe. Um, that sort of linked all the, all the three. Uh, countries but it was really thought of the country problems it was getting problem initially then here as in Sierra Leone and, and WHO and lots of organizations really did view it from a country point of view rather than an ethnographic uh, kind of overarching point of view um we have done quite a bit of learning from it so there is I think some work that's been done at the WHO on intergovernmental preparedness they have a, a, a roster and I of uh, kind of emerging infections uh, physicians like myself uh, who are registered and are able to deploy quite rapidly. We've got, um, within Public Health England, and London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine uh, rapid sort of support teams. So the UK will go out and provide epidemiologists, infectious disease physicians, to really look at what, if there's an emerging effort for the key unanswered questions that we need to, to, to pick up on well early. Uh, so there, there's a variety of mechanisms where I think we have learned, but there is still no nationally uh, recognized scheme where one country and another country will work together and allow a whole cadre of physicians or nurses or whoever the most appropriate skilled uh, subgroup of people to be immediately released from their work because it needs to be immediate. Quite quite a lot of the political problems with infectious disease outbreaks is people are very used to working in kind of longer term, longer term uh, trajectories, you know, within months or years and not days and weeks. So it is really difficult, I think, to, to get the rapidity of, of response uh, to, to an emerging crisis and we haven't quite solved that yet. And you know we look they're sort of revisiting those assumptions. So it's difficult to, to know your unknown unknowns. We can revisit some of the, you know, the, the things that we looked at for, for Ebola, obviously very similar to Marburg, And the, you know, the, the things that we, we, we thought clearly that couldn't happen obviously did. And so those are relatively easy to rethink for other infectious disease agents. But the unknown unknowns are, are that much more difficult. And where is the next thing going to come from? And there's a couple of examples at the moment. I mean, I think if you look at things in the world at the moment, Zika was uh, a virus that was discovered in Uganda in the 1950s. But it was only un- until we saw the microcephaly and the big problem in uh, kind of Latin America that, that, that it's, its kind of potential threat uh, was established. Uh, Coronaviruses are some sort of common cold viruses uh, that, that we all catch each winter. But um, SARS uh, initially and then MERS, which is the Middle Eastern respiratory uh, virus that, that is uh, very closely related to SARS. Uh, are, are out kind of shoots of that that have just developed probably from interaction between coronaviruses in, in other animals and then the human population. And smallpox is the only infectious disease to being eradicated so far, but monkeypox, and there's recently in the news, we have a patient in, in, in our own hospital at the moment. And the, the, clearly, you know, the, there were, as you get rid of one thing, you know, there were other uh, viruses and, and bacteria that will kind of fill in to, to, to fill up the gap. Uh, then there also, I think, is just the, the last thing about, um, what is kind of going to be the, the thing that's going to pick us off. Most people think it's likely going to be a big respiratory virus, so probably a pandemic thing. Mean, if you look at the top of the government's risk register, uh, and the top of the civil contingencies there's always uh, kind of a pandemic uh, respiratory, uh, respiratory virus, which is that much more difficult to, to control. And you get rid of your first responders very quickly, uh, so that the people that are living, that are already kind of less skilled to be able to deal with it. And then finally, I think there's antimicrobial resistance, which is very much the infectious disease equivalent of climate change, it is a massive threat, and a very, very significant threat. Uh, and one that we're gradually seeing in hospitals, So we don't have untreatable infections where people die because there are no antibiotic choices. If you fast forward that 30 years from now, you may well have a scenario where you can't do an operation, you can't do an appendicectomy because the risks complications of that are too extreme because we don't have antibiotics to treat it. But because it's not immediate and it's not that sexy, it's, it really is, is sort of kind of underfunded. So those are probably some of the, you know, the, the main themes I think in the future that we'll, that we'll begin to, 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 to see as emerging as the next crisis. Samantha, do you have anything to make so
0: bad?
5: <laughs> no, um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, okay. I wanted to mention the word as the country, Yemen. I expected to hear the word Yemen from my honourable uh, gentleman, formerly from the GHQ, GCHQ on the left. I didn't. You might have seen me whispering to uh, the honourable gentleman on the right, asking me where Oman was, because I didn't know. And he told me it was not Yemen. And I expected to hear it from my honourable woman on my left, Yemen, and I didn't. And so I'm just going to briefly, before I go on to what I was actually going to talk about tonight, is just saying, Yemen and our complicity with what's happening in Yemen, a current crisis. The UK government has licensed 4.7 billion in arms to Saudi Arabia and uh, basically to turn Yemen into a car park. And that's a quote from an article I've just written and will go out at some point, I'm sure. Um, and uh, Saudi Arabia has exploited uh, the crisis that was in Yemen, uh, between local uh, ethnicities, tribes, whatever you want to call them, the Houthis, people from the north and south. There's always, there was already a crisis there happening. uh, I think it's the south or the north who to secede from the the, the other half. But however, Saudi Arabia has exploited that and they, uh, Yemen, which is the poorest country in the race has been battered and you should always have it on your mind because we are visit. My name is Samantha Asimardy and uh, yes, as Peter said, I uh, uh, I founded an organisation called Media Diversified and the Media Diversified Experts Directory and uh, co-founded a literature festival called Fair Lit. But in my previous life, I was a documentary filmmaker which led on to me to be a new, what was I, a breaking news reporter and currently I guess I'm a writer because I've written a uh, part which is about women foreign correspondents, my own experience, uh, particularly, but I'm interviewing a load of other women foreign correspondents and war correspondents. There's not that many of us, there should be more. Uh, I'm out not one now, so there's one less. But I'm gonna just quickly, because I don't want to take too much time, is uh, read some excerpts from my, my uh, upcoming book. I don't know what my agent will say about it. Or, uh, I've not signed a contract yet, so I can't mind right. So very quickly. So it's, uh, this is uh, from the introduction chapter, uh, the book may be called the wannabe, it may not be, but anyway, here we go. It was the dead babies that did it for me, specifically the dead black babies. Toddlers, I suppose, would be near at. They confirmed to me I wasn't cut out to be a foreign correspondent. Does empathy get in the way of good journalism? One well, would hope not, but depending on the situation, it can. Think of some of the winning photo- photographs in the yearly World Press Photo competition. Whilst the, whilst the photographers were most likely not psychopaths, in the moment that they didn't act on any empathy, they may have had, they may have had by intervening. That's what made them journalists and me a wannabe. I edged back from the tableau in front of me, two two dead black toddlers laid out on a table outside of a small one-story structure. I thought they were both girls. I couldn't be sure. Killed the day before, after days of heavy rain and finally pushed the mud from the top of the mountain onto their village of 300 people. There, there, They lay there unknowing, they were the source of such interest and in intense mourning as survivors and young journalists surrounded them. As I edged back, the other journalists edged forward, my boyfriend streaming them for Al Jazeera called back to me for something. I couldn't quite hear him between my suppressed tears and the survivors wailing. I was holding his tripod, so it may have been that. My white boyfriend edged forward, eager to capture the dead black children on his camera. I edged backwards. We had met the year before in London, he was in the midst of doing a broadcast MA, eager to go to East Africa and be a fully fledged journalist, Confident in a stint in Kenya meeting Western journalists for whom Nairobi was a hub, would give him the news editor contacts he needed before heading to Kampala with his new camera purchased by him by his surrogate uncle, a big shop lawyer in the York City. He'd been incredibly lucky to meet such uh, to meet each other in that transition year by friends and friends and friends, I proudly started working for Sky's now defunct showbiz website, interviewing D-list celebrities about z events. <laughs> he introduced me to the latter work of writers such as Michaela Rong and Ryzard Kapuscinski, both white writers who had somehow managed to capture truths, corruption atrocities, and atrocities in their reporting trips. In uh, Africa, her for Reuters and Financial <laughs> Times, and later writing a seminal work was I didn't do it for you. How the world portrays more African nation about history their trade. Is
3: that is my time up?
5: Uh, I mean, I, well, I just wanted to ask you actually. I mean, because we've always had fairly similar experiences. But uh, when you when
0: you know when you cross that threshold from being someone who watches news to someone who helps produce news, how did that change the way that you sort of thought about what makes a bad news crisis. If that makes
5: sense. Before you actually got better witnessing it. But you're. While you bad news crisis. In what sense? The of of death? Death. You know the sort of stuff. Where, you know, the phrase is if it leads it leads Right. Oh right. Yeah. 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 I I mean, um, how, you know, how did you
0: sort of? How did you find yourself thinking about what was important and what wasn't? And how did that match
5: what um, the rest of the media kept us in to do? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I had been in the country, living in Uganda, for quite a while. I started a local production company. I was doing a, a show called Jazz My Life, which is something like Pimp Your Ride uh, if you're an American. And so uh, um, going into news then, I, I, I knew from my boyfriend at the time what he wanted. He put at the front what he was pitching to AFP. Starting within Al Jazeera and it was the more sexy stories for one of the better world. And I found that the women journalists I knew were actually going out and finding more interesting stories to me at least, a lot of them about women, not always, but um but that but, but I, so for putting it on an agenda for a for a news editor I can see what they want. I don't believe that they what they always want is what people want us to see or read. Um, I mean, I know that even having just written for the Telegraph and writing a story about me working on a construction site for a few months and uh, some of the harassment and so on, I got, that doesn't sound like a sexy story when you say it like that, but, you know, it was the most read article at the Telegraph last weekend, so, uh, on, the, on their website. So, but going to, to 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 deaths, I mean, they say that, or somebody said, I don't know, you know, one death is a crisis of tragedy, but like 100,000, you know, it's, it's just numbers then. And I guess that actually is interesting in terms of deaths of reporters such as Marie Colvin and so on. That was a big, big deal. But obviously, there are a lot of people who die in Syria. And somehow that is such a big deal. Uh, saying Yemen, I mean, I, mean, I, I worry for there's a reporter, a woman reporter, like Iona Clay, who does a lot in Yemen for the intercept. And I just think, you know, well done her. And I hope she just does, doesn't die there. But you
0: know that's interesting that I, I I know her name, so I can say that. But there's a lot of people who don't. Yeah. Last of You talked about the, the piece on the construction side. one of the things that Mike touched on is this creeping crisis in Western politics of sort of a disconnect. Just talk through you know what you were what you felt the people you were working with were worried about and how that was sort of creating the political environment that we now that we now live on in. On the construction side. Oh yeah yeah.
5: Uh, what they were worried about. Yeah. Okay, well, really, very basically, uh, wages and Muslims mostly. Um, other things, uh, I mean, that, you know, these are guys that I worked with for some months and went to a lot drinking with and working with, got very sweaty on the, on the hot days on site and so on. But uh, basically, they, they, they're concerned with keeping their jobs, keeping their reputation so they can keep their jobs. Hence why, when I had uh, issues with. Someone abuse and stalking. You know, there wasn't as many people on my side as you would think, uh, because it was a matter of we need to keep our job. We don't want this site shut down and so on. But yes, I think jobs very much so. And something actually, I'm going to say it because I haven't had got the article out yet. I've, uh, you know, so a number of months ago, I sort of wrote a little comment on a on a John Harris had written a Guardian article about when um, uh, past people, liberal, liberals, blah blah, blah. and uh, my ex one. Of the Another exit, the Facebook post. And I said, look, do you find the way we talk about two working class people is completely wrong. You've got your own Jones and so on, middle class people talking about or for working class people. And it's just it's just not getting through. These people, they don't belong to a union. They don't vote. They hate politicians. They love Trump. And you know, this isn't everybody. There's a lot of people like that. And I said, the way to talk to them is about jobs. Say to them that the steel industry uh, um, in the steel industry, uh, because of Brexit and, and, and Trump's uh, isolationism, he he's going to uh, really affect our steel industry, which, you know, it's already, can I say the F word Anyway, I'm fucked by Thatcher in the 80s. But regardless of what's left of it, Trump is about to, to uh, really uh, do some bad things too, as well. And I said, like, if we say to them, the construction industry is very linked to the steel industry say their friends in the steel industry are going to lose their jobs then you know this is the way to kind of talk to them to get through you're not you know there's this fallacy I'm, I'm kind of quoting where the middle class fallacy where they think everybody is poor is racist and Race poor, and it's just not true, you know. And that wasn't the case. I was black and I'd on with everybody. So I said to your Owens and your Asbastanis, like, let's talk in that level, you know, about jobs, skills, and blah, blah. And this week, 400 jobs gone in the skill industry. And I'm not a foresight person, but this is insane we had, I'd start this a month and a half ago, if we had organized the trade unions a month and a half ago, maybe we wouldn't have kept those 400 jobs, but we would have got solidarity amongst those workers and we would have like, started something that would curtail the fact that 400 people have now lost their jobs and can't leave their families. So that's a long-winded answer to your, uh, your no, question. You. So David, let's, get, let's come to you and
0: then we'll break for a break. break, break you.
6: David, come to you and never go to the bar. That's a really good opening. <laughs>
1: yeah,
6: um, um, good evening, everybody. I, I've been fascinated by, the, by the, the insights and the perspectives. And, and from, from what Samantha says, I think one of the things we need to remember, um, it's very easy to see a crisis in terms of systemic failures. Um, but the truth of the matter is that any crisis, whatever its nature, is real, it's personal, it's immediate, it's local. And it hurts. Um, and it's often about how do I feed the kids? And um, how do I get the breakfast? How do I find clean water? Where do we sleep tonight? Um, and when we talk in terms of systemic failures, it's often easy to forget that. My own perspective comes from um, hyper complexity. I look at hyper complex uh, strategic crisis environments. And it seems to me that one of the problems that we have in having this discussion is. To conceptualize what a 21st century crisis looks like. Um, And if we were to describe 21st century life in one word, you could think something maybe globalization, maybe connectivity, maybe instantaneous, maybe dependency. Um, But for myself, the word I keep coming back to is complexity. And it seems to me that if we're to understand 21st century crisis in a meaningful sense, We have to engage with complexity, um, which is at the root of everything that that we seem to deal with, both in terms of the environment, the world, um, our own networks, our social networks, our organisational networks, our information networks, the problems, um, the impacts, and then the consequences, which are long-term. I was at a briefing this morning um, on what's called Black Sky Black Start, Events, which is basically critical national infrastructure failures, which is something I've been involved in a couple of steering committees on, um, and we were given a briefing by a senior government expert, probably government figure, but the CEO of a critical national infrastructure, who explained to us that they did have a black sky startup plan, um, and then he went on to describe it in that people would still come to work, for example. Um, They'd be able to refuel their vehicles. They'd be able to communicate with people. The trains would work. And the truth of the matter is everybody who has a plan presumes that everybody else is doing okay. And that's not what a 21st century crisis looks like. I think, look, some of the work that Peter's doing with with the, the project, the study of the 21st century, one of the issues we have to deal with is what does a 21st century crisis look like? So what I'd like to do, just very briefly, is to go through maybe a a few touch points, words, that would hopefully trigger some thoughts. And I'll do it from two perspectives. One is looking at the external world, what does a crisis look like? And the other is internally, well, what the hell are we supposed to do about it? Um, In 2015, there were apparently 17 um, mega cities, Um, mega city over 10 million people. Of those 16 are on the coast, the only one being Delhi, which is inland, um, by the year 2030, which is not far away, um, there's going to be between 30 and 33 megacities, all on the coast, all in the emerging south. I started doing this 25 years ago, and I used to say, in my lifetime, we're going to be living in a world that's underwater. It's the truth already. I, I spent two and a half years in, in Nigeria. Uh, Lagos is underwater for four months of the year. Paris was underwater last year. Um, what does it mean? when our major cities are underwater. First of all, it means that if you have an emergency generator, that's not gonna help you. It's just gonna be in the basement. So that's the first thing. But what does it mean in terms of social movement, in terms of, 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 of pandemics, et etc.? et cetera? Um, The other big, big issue is urbanization. Um, we have this phrase among smart cities. Most cities are really stupid. I mean, unbelievably stupid. I mean, the the idea of a city in its basic concept is you get up in the morning, have breakfast, you then go to the city, you do whatever you need to do, and then in the evening you go home. No city in the world manages to achieve that at the moment. Every city is dysfunctional at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So the idea of having smart cars, smart cities, etc. I'm not quite what it means is your car will tell you how long you're going to be in this seven-hour, until you've been in your third seven-hour traffic jam in Lagos. You cannot talk about traffic to me, um, and that is the norm. Now, if we're talking about a seven-hour traffic jam, that could be Moscow, that could be Bangkok, that could be Lagos, that could be that could be Dhaka, that could be Cairo. That is the reality of the world we live in. So I think that what we haven't done is genuinely looked at what does a 21st century crisis mean. For example, we have never yet lost a major city. But we almost lost Tokyo. In 2011, Fukushima, we almost lost Tokyo. Now, i spent five years in Japan. I know Japan very, very well. Um, and what happened in Japan was what happens in most crises is that the first thing that happens is the people who are responsible for planning for that crisis and responding to crisis go, I didn't think it was gonna be like that. And if it's the point that some of our people here are be making is the conceptualization is just not realistic. And unless you build in chaos, infrastructural collapse, inability to communicate, then you're not looking at a true crisis. For myself, one of the definitions that we use when we're working with people and trying to understand what it means is, we said if your infrastructure is in place, it's not a crisis. If your roads are there, if your transport is there, if your communications is there, your ability to move information around, then it's not a crisis because you have the wherewithal to respond. But if your communication, let's just very quickly take a critical national infrastructure failure. Um, For example, communication towers have a built-in resilience of about four hours, if they're they're offline. Most of our mobile phones, phones will go down in 12 hours. Um, you weren't going to get fuel out because of course you need pump, pumpings for that. ATMs will go down so nobody can live except with the money they've got. Happened in Indonesia last year, Jakarta. 15,000 um, locations of ATMs went down the country without, 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 um, without access to cash. Um, sewage you know, the sewage is pumped, so whatever, you know, that will then, the ability to, to freeze food or whatever it might be. So that's on the outside what it looks like and the truth of the matter is anybody who wants to talk about this seems to me has to accept the totally responsibility of understanding what a 21st century crisis looks like. From the flip side, um, it's not magic and it's not voodoo. It is process management. You know, we understand crisis management and therefore the question has to be, why the hell do we keep having crisis? Why is it that after Grenfell Tower, Kensington and Chelsea cannot look after 500 people for a week? Now the thing about a crisis is, nobody ever gets up in the morning thinking today's gonna be the day. You know, if you'd said to the chief of security of the, Global, of the World Trade Center on September 10th, 2001, name you 100 things that are gonna go wrong tomorrow, somebody coming and knocking this building down would not have been on that niche. So when you get up in the morning, you don't know. So therefore, to a large extent, Dealing with crisis is emotional as much as technical. Are you emotionally ready to do it? And just like as individuals, we have this flight or flight or freeze thing when we adrenalise, so organizations and governments do as well. And the truth of the matter is it's very, very difficult to make decisions in a crisis environment um, because you don't know what's going on. There's never enough information. You're under pressure. There's nothing you've ever lived through to prepare for that. And the truth of the matter is that the way you learn to live, to deal with a crisis is, you deal with a crisis. The second one is a lot better. But we don't have that luxury. The crises that we're dealing with are not repeatable, but we can learn them. we need to get it right. Um, And so it seems to me that at the end of the day, um, organizations as well have to look at themselves Um, because the truth of the matter is, You cannot prepare yourself during a crisis. And on a very personal level, um, one of the problems with decision making within crisis is, um, there is no right answer. You don't know what the answer is. It's not that, you know, I know what the answer, let's manage it. It is, you do not know. Grenfell Tower, do you stay or do you go? Do you tell people? And you're doing that at two o'clock in the morning when it's chaotic and you don't know what's going on, and there is no right answer, and people will die, whatever happens. And that's a tough call to make. And most people are not ready for it. So it seems to me that if we are to talk about what a 21st century crisis is, our first responsibility is to be truthful to ourselves about what it looks like. Um, I've read, I don't claim to know more than everybody else, but I've probably read more reports than most people. And I recommend, I know there's a lot of people here who are building their careers in that, and what I would recommend, however much you are reading is read more Uh, because crises are not unique Um, they are unique in some ways but in some ways they're not unique and the reasons that people fail to manage crises are definitely not unique you know they are the same reasons every damn time so what you should do is you should read crisis reports because there's always a report Um, and you don't even have to read the reports you just read the executive summary and I will tell you now that in the first three paragraphs you will find the word overwhelming. That is the word that keeps coming up, you know. It's just overwhelming. Once something is overwhelming, you cannot recover. So if I can just close the circle within this circle, the title of this was Imagining 21st Century Crisis, I believe that what it is. Um, Anybody know what the subtitle of the congressional report to the 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center was? A failure of imagination. We didn't think it was going to. We had the information. We did not think it was going to go that. And I think that if we are to talk in a reasonable way or a rational way, and then engage with 21st century crisis, I think we've got to get the imagination right first.
0: Uh, I feel that's probably an excellent moment to send everyone to the bar and remind them we're going to have a question and answer session afterwards. So this is your chance to think those goals, think the unthinkable, and uh, and really sort of put uh, the panel Yeah. Can I just say, by the way,
6: you are looking for a solution. You need a consultant. I think everybody would agree with that. We're going to have a
0: quick quick run to the bar and then we'll restart in about 10 minutes. Thank you very much. has been a great yeah, week. <laughs>